My name is Nancy Beecham, and I am a compulsive overeater, and also I happen to be a 100-pounder. I hope that you understand I came into this program, I kind of rolled in this program, on June 28, 1976. And um, that means that I have been abstaining and following this program now for 44 years. So please understand that what I say and what I do is not what I said and did five years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago. This program for me is a process of evolution. And I believe that those of us who have been around a long time are just sailing through this pandemic. Because we were taught here how to be very uncomfortable. And we were taught here how to handle a lot of change. And we were taught that when there's grief, we know exactly what to do and how to walk through it so that it doesn't consume us. Because my job here from the beginning, I believed, was completely not to lose weight. My job was to find a program to maintain an absence. My job here, because as my friend Roy says, any moron can lose weight, but not too many people here have been able to keep it off. And not too many people here have been able to not yo-yo up and down. And I believe for me, the day I got here, I had suffered enough and struggled enough. I earned my feet. So I want to share to all of you who may be just like me, that overeating takes a lot of forms. And whether you're out there smoking or drinking or overeating or living with a guy you don't like or in a job that's abusive or having friends in your life who aren't kind to you, it doesn't matter. If the substance you use to shove it down and get rid of those feelings are food, then this is a program for you. So listen up. And I believe in my mind that something happened to me when I was a little girl. I was two years old, maybe 18 months, and my mother threw me in a train because my father was dying and we went to say goodbye to him. And I must have been extremely uncomfortable because I was not even two. And I started shoving food in my face because it was easily accessible. And in those times, fat babies were cute. And by the time I was five, something else made it happen in that home that made me feel crummy. I don't know if it was that my grandparents were living with us and there was a lot of tension because they didn't know if my father would live and they brought him home and how they were going to survive. But all I know is by the time I started kindergarten, I was the fattest kid in the room. And by the time I was seven, a traumatic thing happened. My brother was born and my brother weighed a pound and ten ounces and almost died. He was in the hospital for many months. He had a thing that made him blind, and forever my life was changed. Now, I don't know that the fact that I was very fat and had to go in all these newspaper articles and television shows because he became so important in the education turnaround for children with disabilities, and I was so ashamed of who I was. All I know is by the time I was seven or eight, I was very lonely, a loneliness that only an overeater can understand. And I know I suffered greatly from my lack of self-esteem. And I don't know if I grew up with a terrible problem for men because my mother told me when I was very small, nobody will ever love you and no man will ever stay. And many times these days, as I go into my late 70s, you know, I still get those feelings back and I get to remember they're not the truth. And I get to tell myself to shut up. And I'm so grateful when I came into the meeting that Len, who's sitting here right now, and I'm so proud to see him, you know, I came in 
and I, I came in in June 28th, and he came in in February. So I always knew there were people who went ahead of me who put down those stones. And all I had to do was step on the stones and follow what they did. And as long as I followed the fact that this was a WE program and that I held the hands of those that joined in, and I always had a posse that I would somehow be okay. And there's another thing I learned in the beginning. We turned to a thing called The Doctor's Opinion in a book called Alcoholics Anonymous. And in that book it said to me, very distinctly just to me, you must be completely abstinent in order to work these steps. And so I got my trusty cooler that I'll show here today, and it's got a lot of stickers on it because it's been to Region 2 and World Service and all kinds of places. And the sticker flies, and during the week I keep this on me. I've always kept me on me. I'm going to talk about food for a minute because the damn stuff nearly killed me. And the truth is, in this cooler always, it's ready to go to the park today. And it's got a whole bunch of cut-up veggies, you know. And in it's got a thing of tuna in case I get stuck somewhere with no sodium in it. And it's got a can of string bean and even a can opener. And it's got things to keep me abstinent so there's never any excuses. And before I got on this podcast this morning, which was early for me, in my refrigerator is my lunch and my dinner. Because I know I'm going to get tons of phone calls after this meeting. And that no matter what's going in my life, that abstinence has to come first. And I believe I've stayed here all these years because of two things. I got clarity. I got clarity as my mind cleaned up because I wasn't abstaining. And also because of the people in this program that I followed. I was very lucky that I happened to live in an area which is around the corner from where the founder of this program lived. And without really knowing it, there was a man in this program I thought was cute, and I wanted to get his number, so I called this woman named Jean Jaffe Smith. Her sister, Doris, I thought was neat because she was a character, and I loved Doris. She was outgoing and kind of wild. But Jean was a spiritual woman, a very kind, gentle woman with a lot of dignity who wore golden bracelets. What would I want? I didn't want what she had. I wanted to be crazy and wild. I wanted to lose weight, and I wanted to go get everybody that ever hurt me. I had a retribution hit list. And I had to learn a lot about forgiveness in these latter years. And the idea that when I ask somebody to forgive me, when I try to when I ask when I try to forgive somebody, it's to stop that asset I heard at a seminar yesterday that's running through me. All that resentment and anger just hurts me. And when and I want to tell you something, I want to stop for a minute and I want to tell you. I have probably achieved what I feel is the goal of this program and why I came here, but I didn't know it. It was not to be happy. It was to have some peace and calm. It was to be immersed in the 11th step and feel like God is speaking for me. And it was to feel that all the horrible things I did, and if any of you out there have had to become a child, if any of you out there lived with a man who beat you up, if any of you worked on jobs where they told you you were too fat to have lunch breaks, if any of you had friends and insulted you, but you thanked them for their presence because you were so lonely and thought nobody else would come, that you don't have to live like anymore, that anymore, and you will find people here that will walk you through these things. And I think for me that every rotten thing I ever did, I spit out like I say, past the salt and pepper. Because I know out there may be one child who maybe is living with a man who's not kind to her, Maybe you're in a job where you just feel 
so depleted. And maybe you've got, you know, roommates and people around you. My house now, I may be alone right now at this moment, but nobody comes here who's insulting to me. And my house is a haven of recovery. I have a daughter that hasn't talked to me in 25 years because she's living back when she was an infant and she's suffering greatly. But I know there's nothing I can do except, you know what? Often a girl comes into program that has the name Cassandra and they immediately come to her and take her hand and say, I'm going to be there to help you. And I have a young girl named Melissa, my other daughter. You know, my other daughter is very angry and gained tons and tons of weight. And, and, you know, she's a psychiatrist up at one of the most famous schools in California. And the truth is, I can't take that anger. When she comes down to visit me, she gives me a list of what I can discuss, you know. And she tries to rein me in because she says she's so triggered the minute she sees me by all the hurt that she's had to suffer. But, you know, if they won't let me in and let me be who I am now, God bless them. But I put them in hotels because they don't take that toxicity into my home. And I've learned for me to thank every day, everybody. And I can't not not thank our sponsor, our founder, who sponsored me, you know, when Gene Smith died. And to Roseanne, who taught me really about sitting on her living room and taught me what it is to suffer. And she showed me how her children had truly suffered and truly been sacrificed for Overeaters Anonymous to be born, just like my kids were sacrificed for me to get better. And she showed me my part in everything, but I could stop blaming others, you know? And I am so grateful that right now, you know, when my kids were little, they sold Girl Scout candy, and I think about the Overeaters from my 100 Founders meeting who went with me that first year trick-or-treating with those kids. And I remember Cassie's birthday party, when I cut that cake and I went to lick the knife, you know, and I didn't know quite what to do, you know. And I remember the times I went to the market and I had that gray sheet in my hand. I knew what my disciplined way of eating was. And I picked out things that weren't even on the list because even like with men, in order to tolerate the relationships and the jobs, I heard things that I didn't hear. When I got pregnant by a man who... I didn't even know because I thought if I had a baby, I'd have somebody that loved me the rest of my life. Didn't work out that way. But the truth is that that man threw me down a flight of stairs and wanted nothing to do with me. And I just said to myself, he's having a bad day. He'll he'll love me tomorrow. And that's how I lived my life till I got here. So the habits that I had when I went to a market and I put grapes in my mouth all the time. And I got so bad that I would take the caramels and open up the packet kind of stuff them in and put it back. I got to make amends for those things. And to all the restaurants where I stole sourdough bread, I got to do a lot of that work. I used to make the children take big purses to restaurants and stuff food in them. And I had to have them watch me write those letters and put them in the mail. And, you know, I stole a lot of things and did a lot of things. If I went to a dance and somebody that I liked asked you to dance and not me, after I tore off their rearview mirror, then I went... And I um, punished you. So the truth is, I got you fired. And the truth is, there's power in overeaters. For us to keep that going and to stay the size we are takes a lot of work. And now that Overeaters Anonymous includes anorexics and bulimics and restrictors, I don't think it's fair for me to define my food. My food plan is my food plan. My abstinence is absolutely how I behave. My abstinence is that I'm kind to you. 
I have a friend yesterday who's suffering greatly from a loss. And I said some things to her that weren't fair because I was chattering on and I didn't clearly listen to her. And I thank her for caring about me enough to risk my anger and tell me the truth. And those are the kind of friends that I've gotten in this program. And that, yeah. Is that five minutes? Yes. And, you know, there's so much in my heart that I wish I could pour out to you. And I believe this is a God's given thing and we're putting God's grace. And I want to thank all the doctors at St. John's and Cedar Sinai Hospital in California. Because right now they're working hard to fix the things that I did to myself before. I know you can't scare an overeater into getting better. But you need to know my heart is very enlarged and I'm holding on to a lot of water. And I also have complete cirrhosis. Fatty liver, it's called. It's going to be the next big epidemic in this country. And it's from eating too much salt and fat. And this is before I was 32 when I walked into these rooms of Overeaters Anonymous. I had destroyed my body. And often when you're very heavy or very bulimic, you don't know what you've done. It's afterwards that you see your atrial fibrillation. And they're working hard now. Now they understand why this last 20 pounds was so hard for me to lose. And sometimes, you know, I, I had a mastectomy and I lost a breast. It, so it seems like an odd thing to talk about, but there may be somebody out there who's scared to death. And maybe if I tell you that you can call me and I can walk you through it, maybe it'll help you. And when I went there, I called people in this program who had shared that with me. It was a really hard thing. But one thing that it did that was terrific it turned around, I didn't know quite how to deal with men at that point, and I was divorced, so I stopped dating and spent a lot of time by myself and just delved into the 11th step. And because of that mastectomy, I feel like God and I walk together now. I'm not behind or ahead of him. He's right here in this room with me now. And so to everybody who's befriended me, and to all the villagers that it has taken to keep me here for 44 years, from the bottom of my heart, this is a program where you must abstain, in my opinion, in my opinion only, and you must work the steps. But there's something else. There are principles in these steps. Honesty, hope, faith, courage, integrity, willingness, humility, brotherly love, justice, compassion, perseverance, spirituality, patience, service, and charity. And without honesty and hope and faith and commitment and courage and integrity, you cannot work this program. And there are four concepts. There are four concepts that Alcoholics Anonymous was founded on. And that is our program. There are honesty, purity, unselfishness, and love. And I don't hear enough about those in the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous. And they're here for me to tell you that every piece of food that I pick up, I have to say to myself, is this piece of food, is this morsel going to nurture my body? that I don't have too much trouble realizing if it's what I should eat or not. So every person in my life that comes in, I ask myself after three minutes, are they still talking about the problem? Are they willing to get into the solution? And I know that meetings, Dr. Bob and Bill, found in meetings so we could tell the newcomer that this person works. And I cried this morning when I looked at myself. I've never looked better in my life. You guys, you can do this thing. This program really works. It's just a matter of discipline and praying and asking for help. And I've always known that there's people here, if I go to a meeting and I say, 
This is my problem. Who can help me? And I sit down and shut up and listen. I don't learn much when I'm talking. I learn a lot when I listen. And then I can get into a solution. But if I spend my three minutes talking about the problem and how bad things are and woe is me and what a victim I am, I will never get into a solution. So I wish for every one of you that you will understand this saying that's on the seat at many World Service Conventions. To get something you never had, you have to do something you never did. And in this program, I have gotten many things I never knew I wanted. But I've gotten rid of a lot of things that I thought I needed. I mean, in other words, the things I thought I needed were not necessarily what God thought I needed. And so I guess for every one of you, you can see I'm overflowing. I wish I could go on for hours, you know. So now we're going to stop. And we're going to follow this format because I'm a good girl and I want to follow the principles of this program and follow directions. So we're going to go back, and I thank you all for listening. This is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. This is a workshop. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and not those necessarily of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not, but you certainly can identify yourself. I have my trusty bear from another program to hold on to if you challenge me, okay? Um, would I now turn this meeting right back to our secretary, who's doing a great job at her first meeting, Nancy, who's going to call on people who raised their hand icon. Yeah. And and if you unmute and ask your question. All right. Go. Perfect. So I see a uh, Heather C. Hi, Heather C. Compulsive Eater and Blooming. Thank you for your amazing share. My question is, in your 44 years of abstinence, mm-hmm. how do you manage not to relapse or eat in the midst of high emotional or physical stress? Whoa, what a loaded question that is. Only you could ask, Heather. (laughs) Um, I was very new in the program, maybe a few years, when my father died suddenly. And um, my father was the one that always bailed me out. You know, I could go to one of his friends and take a car off their car lot, and, and he would pay for it. And I could move into crazy places and do crazy things. And I was a at one point, I tried to have a bypass to lose weight. And I'm an OA baby. I came here at 300 pounds, and I cut myself in half and did everything literally in this program. You know, every every pound that I've ever lost was in Overeaters Anonymous. Mm-hmm. Um, when he died, it was really rough because I felt like, how was I going to survive? How would I stand on my own two feet? I had these two small children to support. And um, I think what I did is I doubled up to secure my abstinence. And I'm so glad in the first years that I did gracious and that I did a very disciplined way of abstinence because I needed discipline. It wasn't the food I ate. And then I went back, and what I always do is go right back to a doctor or a medical professional because in those first eight years, Roseanne always told us, 
Nobody in OA should give us a food plan. Nobody in OA should try to feed us because we all have different bodies. We all have different things we need. And I went to Dr. Gravy and I asked him, tell me what to eat. And he defined my abstinence and made it very simple. He gave me like five proteins and five fruits. He didn't give me a lot of leeway because if you send me out, I'll spend the whole day trying to figure out what to eat. And so I tightened up my abstinence. And then I turned a lot to spiritual things. And I also, many times when I was in stress, had to shed people, places, and things. I had to drop who I was hanging out with and circle around a lot of people who would be constructive to me to help me through. And I believe that as long as I was sustaining, I went to bed every night feeling like I had power, feeling like I was doing the very best I could for myself. And through the years, and then I started sponsoring. And I know Annette, I saw you're on here. Annette was the one of the lifeline editors. It worked at World Service, a hard thing to do. And she honored me. And, and, and because I went to World Service to support her, I learned a lot about the program. And I just dug into service. I dug into the inner group. And I dug into taking a position on the board. And so I think for me that... Everything that's happened that was bad in my life has been turned around to be a blessing because I've been able to grow through it. And I hope that answers your question a bit. All right, next up I have Michelle. Okay, I don't know if this is a very good question, but um, what percentage, uh, yeah, I'm not sure, uh, what percentage of your happiness can you attribute to your service work? Thank you, Michelle. And where are you from? I live by Detroit in Michigan. Uh Welcome to Los Angeles. Thank you. Um, I contribute 100% of everything to servants because I believe that only when I'm out of myself can I recover. You know, I remember when I got in a terrible traffic accident. And um, I had children. I had several little children on the back of the car. And one of them got hurt pretty badly. And she wanted to be a ballerina all her life. And I thought I ruined that kid's life. She was about seven. And um, I was frantic and crazed. And I called Jean. And Jean said to me, well, dear, what, is it, what didn't you want to talk about this morning? You didn't call me at the appropriate time. And I'm thinking, what God's name does that have to do with that? You know, she needs to get my insurance agent and get my car towed. And then she said to me, what meeting will you be going to tonight? And I realized that. And then that day I remembered that she had told me if I would do four things to help other people that they didn't know about in a little prayer book that we passed out at our meetings called Just for Today, that everything would be okay. And once I got my mind off the problem, and did some service in some way, I was able to have great things happen. And I never graduated, I mean, I graduated high school barely, and I went to college. And when I got to college, I was nuts on all the drugs that I was taking to lose weight. And those drugs led me to drinking. So I, I was really bad. It all started because I was so fat and so ashamed that I was trying to do anything to control something that I couldn't control. There's no way I can take this weight on me. It just wasn't going to happen because nobody tried like I tried. And the two, and I even tried when I, well, um, 
So basically with the question, whenever I did something, when I was in the program about six years or five years, I took a ton of pills. And I swallowed them because I tried to kill myself. I really didn't try to kill myself. I wanted attention. And I thought nobody was noticing me. I was fat. I was losing weight. They, they weren't uh, having me as the main speaker. I didn't know that I was new and young and green and didn't know anything yet. And the truth was that when I took those pills, the children called 911. And I told them to call all the 100-pounders. I gave them a list. And let's see if those people will show up. That's how nuts I was in recovery. And so I got to the hospital, and believe it or not, a girl who was sponsored by my sponsor's brother was in the ER as an attending physician. And he saw me, and he said, you know, now you're down as a suicide, and you're really in trouble here. And I realized that I could do great harm to me and others around me when I wasn't being, and all I had to do was go back to that meeting, the 100 pounders, and instead of being dramatic and full of chaos, See, I was addicted to chaos, to being up and down. But when I was on service, I was straightforward. When I wasn't doing service, I was there for something other than myself. And I was no longer a victim, and I no longer needed to be the center of attention. But I'll tell you the happiness that came to me from service and the greatest is I became the public information chair for the LA Intergroup. And at that time, I went for an interview for a job, and it was turned out to be for ABC and Los Angeles Magazine. I knew nothing about it. I was crazier than a loon. I knew nothing about advertising. And this girl hired me because she had seen me in an OA meeting. And she had come out here to try to get abstinent, and she was scared to death. And she said, if you, ha- if you help me, I'll get you an assistant, and I'll give you that job. And while I was on that job, my sponsor said to me, you must be of service in the program. You can't do that job where you're working 60 hours a week. You will ask them to make you the receptionist because you quit it. You'll work nine to five in that lower position. And you know what happened? I got to do all the publicity for Los Angeles and all the television shows. And I got to work with all the stars who were breaking their anonymity in this program. You know? And I got to do all that because I was doing service and I soared. So it really wasn't about the job. It was about getting well, and I didn't realize how long it was going to take. So I hope in some of that you understand that the service led me to where I was trying to go without my even trying. It taught me how smart I was and how bright I was and what I could make happen. Awesome. Next question is Marina. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Marina, compulsive reader and a recovered sugar addict. Nancy, thank you so much for your powerful share. Um, I have two questions, real quick questions. You mentioned the principles, and you rattled off a bunch of, I didn't have time to write everything. I was wondering if you could put those in the chat, or I don't know. I don't know if you said real fast, but anyway. Um, and then you said to get something you never had, you must, and I didn't get the second part. <laughs> Marina! I got you. My phone number's right there. You're going to need to call me. <laughs> I, I got it down. I wrote it down. <laughs> you get something you never had. You have to do something you never did. And the principles of the program, I have all kind of lists, and the people that send me their emails and things, I could probably, I'll get somebody to figure out a way to send it to you. The principles 
I like the principle of humility. You know, these are all part of the steps. And every single one of our traditions, which is really, the traditions aren't a joke, and we're often not respectful when they read up. The traditions are our program, have the principles in there for which we run our lives. They teach us how to be in relationships. They teach us how to be kind. You know, this is the world I heard a saying the other day that when you're kind to somebody, they might think you have an ulterior motion. But we in this program, a motive, but we in this program must be kind. And sometimes when you walk out there and you gently try to act for change, people don't hear you unless you cause a big ruckus. Well, don't make a ruckus still be kind, though. And I've learned now that everything I did in my life, I did with force. And I did with such high anxiety and such drama. And I'm able to do these things dignified now. I'm able to walk across the street and be proud of who I am with my head held up and no longer be ashamed of how I behaved. And you know, there are people in this program who are moving mountains. There are legislatures, there are governors, there are doctors, there are dentists, there are all kinds of people and you never know. But when you watch them, you'll learn and you'll hear. I have seen a president of the United States sworn in a holding a big book, you know, because he was a, a cow. And so if we pay attention, we will realize that the principles in this program are everything because they are how we have to behave. And the food, the food is something that, again, is our food plan. We get a food plan, we stick to it. I had a food sponsor, and she taught me to have a smaller plate. And she taught me all kinds of tricks. And she taught me all kinds of things to do. And to Judy H., who may be on this podcast, who taught me, oh, my God, so much, taught me about gentle eating, to chew my food ten times, to always leave a little food on my plate. What a concept. I never did that, you know. And she taught me to take my voice. And when I eat, to hear myself saying a prayer, talking to God. So many tricks and so many ways to live this program. If you want to recover, you got to fight for it. i got to wear my butterflies that I was given. And i got to wear them every day to remember that I'm not ready to fly yet. And I have to go to the ocean and I have to throw a rock. And since I can't stop those waves, i still got to go to meetings and get up and say my three prayers, you know. The program is what you do every morning when you wake up, you know, the things that you're taught by your sponsor to do to work this program. And another thing is for Heather's question is when I'm in trouble, I make sure that that morning I do the original readings that Roseanne gave me every morning. And that I read three pages of the big book and that I call four people and see how they are and put this program into action, you know? So is there one last question that's quick? Yeah, so we have Veronica B. Hi, I'm Veronica. I'm a compulsive overeater and bulimic. And Nancy, thank you so much. I am your biggest fan. And um, my question is, um, my question is, um, I, I can't find you here. I got, uh, I got sober in AA, but my AA God wasn't big enough for me and to keep me abstinent. How did you find your God in Overeaters Anonymous? Thank you. I found my God because I was chasing that man and called Jean, and Jean thought I was calling her for her to sponsor for for her to sponsor me. And because she said, "Well, you're in a lot of trouble, you probably need me." And I think she was afraid of me. 
And she came into the program at 50, and she died at 88 with 28 years of abstinence. And Jean, um, she just believed in God. She had had an experience at the beach once where she was walking, and God came. She said something came down and touched her and told her it was going to be okay. And she felt that she had had that moment of clarity and that moment of peace. And because she had it once, she knew how she could get back there. And she made me gather, right now I wish I could take you outside because I live in a condo where if you walk outside, there's trees everywhere. So everywhere I look, I see the trees blowing in the wind. And she taught me a lot about prayer and meditation. She taught me that if all I could do was every hour on the hour, go in the bathroom where I worked and get on my knees and say, thank you, God, that that was a form of meditation. To sit on my ass, take a deep breath, and make room for the next thought. But she taught me a lot about the goodies. And if I was to start to see the good in the world, that God was good. And so to me, it's all about bringing in God and talking to him a lot. And it's all about pausing. And I'm sad to say it was this last 10 years that I really hung in tight. And I really started to learn about self-care. And God, to me, is when you start taking care of yourself first. When something horrible happens to somebody else, I try to look at it like I'm a professor in a classroom and learn how to detach. Because if I let myself fall apart, I have a little granddaughter who's 17 I never thought I would see. And she found me last year. And now I get to be in her life, not my daughter's, but I get to be a big part of Annie's life and her recovery. And if I would have fallen apart and succumbed to all the tragedy I've watched people go through, when you're going to be in this program, you're going to know millions of people, and you're going to see a lot of things happen. Physical illness, death, all kinds of horrible things. People killing themselves. Because the big book says to us, and I want to close with this thought, the big book says, if we do not abstain completely, we will absolutely die. We will end up in a mental hospital or in jail. So does it surprise me when people relapse and get in terrible car accidents or pass away? Does it surprise me when people here have heart attacks and strokes? Of course not. The book tells me that's what's going to happen. They're going to die and go insane. It doesn't tell me you have a choice to fool around here. So I turn to want to listen to people like Tony and Carl, people that know the principles, people who know what their abstinence is. To my old friends Miriam and Sam who stuck around here for 43 years and always tried to do the right thing. I tend to want to towards people here who are following the principles. And I tend to want to eat. I can love all of you and know you all and talk to you all, but I eat my meals with people that are eating like me. And that's a whole other subject. But I tend to like to surround myself with people that respect my abstinence. I don't try to fight the fact that I am a compulsive overeater. I may have to do things a little different. But if you invite me to your Thanksgiving dinner and you tell me that it's ridiculous that I brought my food, that I can have a little, I may walk out after a while if I'm not in fit spiritual condition that day. Because the truth is, I would rather eat my food on a Thursday of Thanksgiving, in the park by myself, and go to a 100-pounders meeting that night and be a member of this program with fellowship all around me that supports me.